Hey, welcome back. So, for tonight's topic, for tonight's reflection, sharing, um, I wanted to talk about taking refuge. Um, it's been on my mind recently, and um, I've actually never talked about it in a Dharma talk. So this is the first time I've prepared a Dharma talk about taking refuge. So we'll co-create it together. We'll see how how it goes. Um, and it's been on my mind for various reasons. One is <clears throat> I recently taught the um, New Year's retreat up the hill. Um, and for those of you who have sat retreats, who have sat silent retreats, as you know, the first night when you arrive, in fact, tonight a retreat is starting up the hill, and right around this time is when all the retreatants get together in the hall and they sit, and, and the formal entrance, the formal entry into the retreat space is taking the refuges and precepts, chanting them, taking the refuges. Um, so we usually talk about refuges briefly the first night of a retreat. Actually, how many of you have done a retreat? I'm curious. Okay, so you're familiar with this. How many of you have not done a retreat? Great, I'll explain to you what it is. Um, <clears throat> so, and we usually talk about like five, ten minutes on a retreat night about what, what taking refuge is <clears throat> before chanting it in Pali. And also, if you've ever gone to, to teachings at some other sanghas and also sanghas that are led by monastics, at the beginning of every sit, every talk, the refuges, taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha, um, the refuges are chanted. So another reason why <clears throat> this idea of taking refuge has been on my mind, and I'll talk more, of course, about what taking refuge even means in a moment in this context of, in the Buddhist context, but another reason it's been on my mind is um, with, with the political and social challenges that we're going through, um, actually Spirit Rock um, a few weeks ago uh, wrote, and, and I was um, glad to be a part of this process, um, of actually um, the teachers and, and the board and came up with a statement of values, um, which is now on the first page of Spirit Rock um, website, and the first part of it goes like this. The Spirit Rock Statement of Values, colon, spiritual sanctuary and refuge. Amidst the political and social challenges of our time, and in light of our commitment to liberation, Spirit Rock declares itself to be a spiritual sanctuary and a refuge for all. We will honor and protect those who come here seeking the teachings of liberation. A refuge, Spirit Rock declaring itself to be a refuge. What is a refuge in this context? And last but not least, if you look at the description of the Monday night, which is this forum, on the website, uh, on the um, Spirit Rock website, it says, now in its 32nd year, 32 years, that pr that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Now in its 32nd year, the Monday night sitting group at Spirit Rock has been a welcoming refuge 
for the community to gather, hear the teachings of the Buddha, and practice mindful medita mindfulness meditation. A welcoming refuge. This has been a refuge in, for people coming together, like tonight. We're coming together. It's a refuge to practice together and to learn. So, also a really good topic for the beginning of the year. And it's still the first couple of weeks of 2017. And the idea of taking refuge, again, it's one that uplifts the heart and, and really serves as a compass for, for our actions, for, our, for how we show up in the world in the coming year. So this is, I think, a nice um, teaching to be dropped into our minds and hearts at this time of the year, again, to, or to help orient. So, if you look <clears throat> in Merriam-Webster, the word refuge, what does it mean, actually? I've been sitting with that. The word refuge, what does it even mean? What does it conjure up, taking refuge? Given that it's so important in Buddhism, this idea of taking refuge, what does it even mean? So, there are three definitions. It's a noun, obviously. One, shelter or protection from danger or distress. Two, a place that provides shelter or protection. Three, something to which one has recourse in difficulty. So the word refuge in Pali actually is the word sarana, sarana. And I particularly like the first um, translation of refuge is the shelter or protection from danger or distress. And really taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha are supposed to be, are supposed to provide this shelter and this pr protection from danger and distress. And how is that? How has that come to be? We'll talk more about it. In the Buddhist context, taking refuge, which actually is going for refuge. So for those of you who might be familiar with the chant that goes, Buddham saranam gachami, dhammam saranam gachami, sangam saranam gachami. Literally, it gets translated to, to the Buddha, for refuge I go. To, to the Dharma, for refuge I go. To the Sangha, for refuge, I go. So just to define the terminology before I go any further, for those who might be <clears throat> very, new very new to the practice, well, the word Buddha, we kind of know what the word Buddha means, right? Yeah, that's kind of clear, right? The word Dharma, the word Dharma actually has two meanings. Dharma with capital D is the teachings of the Buddha. So all of the teachings on mindfulness, on compassion, on, on all the things that you practice and are taught here, they're, they're part of Dharma with capital D. Dharma with small d has another meaning. It actually means the natural law, means things as they are, the natural law the natural unfolding is the Dharma. You know, the water rolls down the hill, right? It goes down because of 
um, so gravity <clears throat> rolls down the hill, or I cough because I'm <clears throat> recovering from bronchitis. It's the natural law, right? That's what happens. You cough. That's what, you know, the virus grows and makes your... Uh, <clears throat> <clears throat> and makes your throat inflamed, so you cough. It's a natural law. So that's Dharma with the small d. Sangha is the word in Buddhism for community. And um, it can also be interpreted as the monastic community and as generations of practitioners, 2,600 years who have passed the teachings of the Buddha down to us. And it can also be construed as the community, the people that you practice with. In fact, tonight, this is our Sangha. We are all part of each other's sangha right now. We're part of each other's community. And there's also an online community right now that's, that's watching this. So we're all part of the sangha, practicing together, this community. So walking, literally going for, walking to the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha for refuge in the Buddhist context is actually the point where one commits oneself to taking the, the Dharma, the Buddha's teachings, as the primary guide for one's life. It's that, it's that sense of commitment that you make, that, oh, this makes sense. Oh, I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to work with this. <clears throat> it can actually be a change of heart and mind as a consequence of deciding to commit oneself to practice, to commit oneself to this path, to this path of awakening and liberation. And it often happens for us when, when changes in work and finances and relationships and health and society become very stressful and we realize that we can't find lasting happiness in any of those. And... and we naturally search for something that does provide more safety, more security. We want to take refuge in what really gives us more freedom in our lives, in our hearts. In my case, years ago, decade and a half ago, I found the Buddhist path because my health became unreliable. I started to develop a chronic condition a long, long time ago. And I spent that the first year being really sick and nobody could figure out what was going on. And, and that's when I signed up for, for meditation courses and sat my first meditation retreat. Um, I needed something else because nothing was really working. There was no safety, no refuge in my life. <clears throat> my body was falling apart. And you know when your body falls apart, other things start falling apart too, right? <clears throat> so I just want to provide a little in the historical context actually what this taking refuge means, how it came about. And then I want to tell you more about what it actually means, the how. Like, what do we mean by when we say taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha? So, 
In the historical context in the pre-Buddhist India, going for refuge <clears throat> meant proclaiming one's allegiance to a patron, either a powerful person or God. Um, and then you would submit to the patron's directives in the hope that you would receive protection uh, from danger in return. For example, you would, you would uh, proclaim your allegiance to a really powerful king, right? And they would offer their protection to you. You would take refuge in their court, right? In that way. Is that familiar to people from historical context, right? So you would be kind of taking refuge in this king's course, not the, the other king's court. So this, this would be the king that would offer you refuge and safety and protect you if a war, a, a war broke out, right? So that's what it meant. But, but actually, in the Buddhist context, it started to mean something very different because the Buddha is not a god, right? Is, is not in a way that we, we take refuge in the Buddha and, and the Buddha is going to protect us from difficulty and, and, and we take refuge in the Dharma and, and it's going to protect us. It's, it completely turned taking refuge on its head in the Buddhist context. It's not that kind. It's not that kind of a protection in the way that it was offered in the historical context. It's actually a deeper freedom. It's a it's a safety that's offered from the inside out. And again, I'll talk more about what I mean there. Just to say that in in the Buddha's time, in the early years of Buddha's teaching career, what happened was the new followers would come and they would be so impressed by the Buddha, that they would, they would express their allegiance to the Buddha Dharma Sangha. Um, and they would be so moved spontaneously by, by this human being, by this Buddha who was teaching these beautiful teachings and, and was calm and was compassionate and was loving and was charismatic and all of that, that they would spontaneously um, be moved to declare their dedication to him and to his teachings. So that's how it came about. And the Buddha Dharma Sangha, by the way, are called the Triple Gem. And the reason for that also, another historical context for those who are curious, is the gem, uh, that gems in, <clears throat> in pre-Buddhist India, they were thought to offer protection, offer protective powers from evil, right? Uh, power, uh, gem. So that's why uh, Buddha Dharma Sangha is, is called the Triple Gem. So, so again, talking about the Buddhist context, the this the meaning, then the given that Buddha, Buddhism is not a theistic religion, um, basically, what you're being offered protection from are the grave dangers that Buddhism calls the three poisons or the three dangers, which are greed, hatred, and delusion. So those three are what are are are, um, are what cause most pain and suffering in both our hearts and minds and the hearts and minds of everyone else that we know. So by offering safety, by offering protection, basically you're you're being offered safety and protection from these grave dangers, which are more dangerous than any external source. Does that make sense? how this actually completely gets redefined in the Buddhist context, this take, taking refuge and being offered safety. It's actually it's a very deep 
safety that we're being offered. It's safety from our own minds. Who hurts us the most? I know I'm the one who hurts me the most. I know that. I start worrying. I start thinking. I start um, just, whoa, if my mind was calm and aware and loving all the time, it would be heaven on earth right here, right now. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, because it's really the gravest danger are, 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 is what we get into, is what the afflictions that our, mind, that our minds get into. So when we offer safety, when we get safety, we're offering safety both for ourselves and, and the same way offering safety to others. <clears throat> so in this way, in this getting the safety, then these dangers can't touch you. You become fearless. One definition of an arahant is someone who's fully enlightened. They, they're completely safe. They're completely safe. These dangers, these poisons can't touch them. They can't affect them. There's this feeling of ease and safety and freedom in the mind and heart all the time. So the mind, then, is both a source of danger, it's where these dangers arise, and it's also the source of release, when the mind becomes clear and calm and clearly sees and is full of compassion and, and kindness. That is the release. So with that, there actually two levels of refuge when we talk about taking refuge now I'm going to get into the meaty part of the talk about what, what I actually mean so so far I was just setting the context Okay. so now what do we actually mean by taking refuge <clears throat> so first let's consider that there is external refuge and internal refuge so the external refuge, and I'll go through it in more detail, there is external refuge that is taking refuge in the historical Buddha, in the Dharma that he taught, and in the Sangha of practitioners who have followed in his footsteps for 2,600 years. That's kind of the external um, refuge, and I'll talk more about that. And then there is the internal refuge that we take in our minds and hearts, and actually the external refuge can be a scaffold, can support for the internal refuge, this internal release, this internal safety, which is even more profound because the external one is just the form, right? Is something is the, is, the, is the form really, is the form in the world, but it's really this internal one that has the potential to, to, to offer ease and release. They're both important because the external one supports the internal one. So the reason why the external is also important, <clears throat> I, I don't want to talk the external one down too much, is because it's, it's difficult to rely completely on yourself. Right? You can't completely have this internal refuge and completely rely on yourself. You need the external um, 
you, you need the external teachings, the sangha, etc., to 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 help uh, support you in this path. So, so now let me talk about what the, what does the inter, the external and the internal actually mean. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, in the last days of Buddha's life, he said, you should live being your own refuge with no one else as your refuge. You should live with the Dharma as your refuge with no other refuge. So that's, for, for those logicians amongst you, that seems kind of contradictory, right? Because first he's saying you should live being your own refuge with no one else as your refuge, just yourself, nothing else. And then the next sentence, he's saying you should live with the Dharma as your refuge, with nothing as, else as your refuge. Wait, a moment ago you just said me as my refuge with nothing else. So A not B, and now you're saying B not A. So how to reconcile that? It's interesting, isn't it? So it can only make sense if A and B are one and the same, right? If taking refuge in yourself is the same as Dharma, is the same as, so the Dharma is what um, the teachings, the way things are, it actually becomes, it expresses itself in, in yourself and who you are. So now I'll go through both internal and external for for each each of these for each of the refuges, and we'll explore them a little together. So with the with taking refuge in the Buddha. So taking external refuge in the Buddha, bringing to mind that a human being just like you and me. You know, he was a human being. He wasn't a god. He wasn't, you know, even in Buddhist cosmology, he was a human being, just like you. He walked, he talked, and he just like just like any of us. So just like any of us, he, he woke up. He he became free. He became liberated. He really achieved the ultimate freedom of the mind and heart and was able to share it with others. And that, when I think about that, actually that's uplifting to me because it's not supernatural. It's very human. It's very simple. It's right here. So taking refuge in the Buddha in that way. And one practice that actually we don't teach very much um, excuse me, the practice is called Recollections of the Buddha, the Nine Qualities of the Buddha. It's called Buddha Nusati. Actually, how many people are familiar with Buddha Nusati, Recollections of the Buddha? A show of hands. Okay. Not very many people. Yeah, we don't teach this. It's actually a beautiful practice. I want to tell you about this because I practiced this a few years ago with my teacher, Pak Sayada, who is a Burmese Master of concentration and and um, um, 
and teaches very detailed vipassana. So I was practicing with him a few years ago in a long retreat, a three-month retreat, and um, and he taught me the Buddha Nusati recollections of the qualities of the Buddha, and I'd never done it. And actually, I remember it was during a time that practice was was hard. For those of you who've done retreats, you know what I mean. Retreats are not always easy. Sometimes they are hard. They're really just difficult for whatever reason. And this happened to be one of those periods. And this practice is actually taught, the recollections of the Buddha is taught because it's a joyful practice to uplift the mind. And the sole purpose of it is to just uplift the mind. And I've never done the practice. My teacher gave me the instructions and it was a very, in a very formal way. And I soon realized I had to, to be creative. So, so I remember just feeling happy. I started to, to go through the qualities, the nine qualities of the Buddha, and then imagining this human being. And imagination is, is quite important in this practice. Imagining this human being that was completely free, completely kind, completely liberated. I imagine, oh, there's a teacher. What if there was a teacher in town who was really kind, just really a lovely person, awakened, kind, um, completely um, impeccable in conduct, that I had absolutely no doubt about his conduct and his virtue. And just, I, I kept thinking about, wow, what kind of a mind, what kind of a quality of mind would that be? What would the quality of the mind like that would be so clear, would be so pure, heart like that would be so loving, would be so, um, what what a lovely being would that be? And the more I did this practice, the more it made me happy. So actually, I'm going to suggest we do this for a few minutes and just dip your toes in it because it seems like very few people have experienced this. So as you're sitting, close your eyes. Get into your meditation posture. Make sure you're comfortable. And settle into this body. Settle into this breath in this moment. Now, however it works for you, bring up to mind the Buddha, a human being, not so far off as if he were alive in this room, he would just be another human being that you know. See him wear clothes that you know, people nowadays wear. He's wearing regular clothes. You can imagine what he looks like. Maybe he looks like someone that you really, really respect. Somebody who's in your life that you really think very highly of. They, they uh, epitomize kindness, generosity, clarity, wisdom for you. Now see 
I see this human being walking, sitting, teaching. The teacher in town. And he's the Buddha. He's completely awakened. His mind is completely clear. Pure awareness, light. He's really kind, deeply kind, generous. When, when you see him, when you're in his presence, you feel the sense of delight of, of this human being that is just so cultivated that it just makes your heart happy. It buoys your heart. You can completely trust this human being, his conduct, his speech. He speaks kindly. He speaks with wisdom. He's accomplished. He completely understands you. He's the perfect teacher. He teaches you and others exactly how you need to be taught. He completely understands your mind. Wow, what an amazing human being. Wow. See how that makes you feel. Somebody like this exists or existed. Really letting yourself Imagine and delight in the purity of their mind and heart. Let it uplift you. Last minute of this Sit, you can be as creative as you want. Any particular aspects of the Buddha, whether it's kindness, generosity, compassion, to really let yourself, let your heart rest in, let your heart delight in that possibility. Who was a human being? Just like me. I invite you to open your eyes and come back to the room. I'm curious if you like to just shout out a few words. How was that for you? What came up? Say <coughs> words, I can just repeat them so they get recorded.
Compassion. Compassion came up for you. Thank you. Lovely. Serenity. Lovely. Thank you. Grace. Lovely. Grace came up. Thank you. Patience. Thank you. Inspiration. Lovely. Thank you. Anything else? Forgiveness. Thank you. Thank you. Acceptance. Thanks. Well, this is a very brief taste of this practice that can really be developed. And the longer you do it, actually, the more... Um, it's like a fire that you start at first. It's, you know, it's a smart fire. You really have to... Really have to fan it. And then you start to really feel it. And it brings delight and joy and all these lovely quality in our own hearts and mind when we try to imagine and tap into another human being's that had those. So I wanted to offer this as, as an external way to take refuge in the Buddha. And, you know, your mileage might vary, but I know that this practice has really worked for me. And today, as I was contemplating giving this talk, I sat and, and again, I brought to mind the qualities of the Buddha and, and I found my heart being joyous a moment ago was anxious. And, and, and it just a sense of peace and happiness and smile came on my face. Of course, I've done this practice for a long time, so I can go back to that, the, the fire, but, but uh, I invite you to practice with it if, if this was something that in the, these few minutes worked for you. So the internal refuge in the Buddha is, <clears throat> is taking refuge in our capacity to experience those qualities, to trust in your inner goodness, to take refuge that I too, I can wake up. Yes, you, you, you can wake up. It's not reserved for special people. It's possible for every single one of us. And, and when you've practiced, you see that your life starts to change. Your life starts to, to um, change little by little. So that borrowed trust becomes verified trust or faith. So having trust in your own spiritual growth, in your own transformation, in the nature of your own mind being luminous. So the Buddha says, luminous monks is the mind, and it is filed by incoming defilements. Luminous monks is the mind, and it is freed from incoming defilements. So having trust that your mind is luminous in its natural state, and it's the defilements, greed, ill will, hatred, delusion, is what creates those, the difficulties, the rub in our heart and in our mind. Another way that I like to also think about this taking refuge in the Buddha is, is a deep trust in, in goodness. And I'd like to share with you something from, from Albert Einstein. I think it's relevant. 
He says, the most important question you can ever ask is if the world is a friendly place. For if we decide that the universe is an unfriendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to achieve safety and power by creating bigger walls to keep out the unfriendliness and bigger weapons to destroy all that which is unfriendly. And I believe that we are getting to that place where technology is powerful enough that we may either completely isolate or destroy ourselves as well in this process. If we decide that the universe is neither friendly nor unfriendly and that God is essentially playing dice with the universe, then we are simply victims to the random toss of the dice and our lives have no real meaning or purpose. But if we decide that the universe is a friendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to create tools and models for understanding that universe. Because power and safety will come through understanding its workings and its motives. So it's that decision, really. It's that we decide whether to trust in the goodness of the universe. That goodness, that, that potential for goodness, that potential for awakening is similar thing to what Einstein is talking about. Continuing with the Dharma, so as I mentioned, taking refuge in the Dharma, there are two ways Dharma can be construed. Dharma with a capital D is the teachings of the Buddha, so taking refuge in the teachings externally, that means practicing, trusting in the practice, trusting in mindfulness, um, trusting in sila, samadhi, panya, in external action. The Dharma internal dimension is the internal dimension where we actually trust the teachings in an internal way. So trusting the moment, for example, if, if you're sitting and, and there are a lot of worries coming up for the future, doing this, doing that, a lot of worry, a lot of concerns that we often we live with, trusting in the Dharma can mean trusting in the moment, just allowing the moment, opening up to the moment. Um, and there's an internal harmony that can arise when we, when we trust the dharma of the moment that arises. I'd like to share a poem by Hogan Bayes called In This Passing Moment. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and let it wash over you, actually. It's about, it's about taking refuge in the dharma, but in an internal way. See if you can find yourself in this poem. In the presence of Sangha, in the light of Dharma, in oneness with Buddha, may my path to complete enlightenment benefit everyone. In this passing moment, karma ripens and all things come to be. I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. 
When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. This life is as real as a dream. The one who knows it cannot be found. And truth is not a thing. Therefore I vow to choose this Dharma entrance gate. May all Buddhas and wise ones help me live this vow. Oh, I think this poem touches what prose cannot touch, is trusting, is taking refuge, refuge in the dharma of whatever is arising in the moment in an internal way. Trusting the unfolding, trusting. Both the teachings and it's a path of non-resistance. It's a path of non-resistance. So I'll say more, I'll, I'll, um, I'll talk about Sangha and then I'll, um, then I'll come back to this and, and put them together. So taking refuge in Sangha, the external refuge is, is taking um, refuge in wise friends. And the internal Sangha is trusting in the capacity for goodness, for our kindness, compassion, and generosity. So taking inner refuge in Sangha is basically having confidence in our own inner capacity for goodness, even when it may not be evident. I'd like to share one story that actually talks about taking refuge in both in ourselves and in the Dharma um, in an oblique way, and then I'd like to open it up. So... The story, again, I'll invite you to close your eyes and let it wash over you. It's called The Rabbi's Gift. And it's by M. Scott Peck. The the story concerns a monastery that had fallen apart hard times. Once a great order, as a a result of waves of anti-monastic persecution in the 17th and 18th centuries and the rise of secularism in the 19th, All its branch houses were lost and it had become decimated to the extent that there were only five monks left in the decaying mother house, the abbot and four others, all over 70 in age. Clearly it was a dying order. In the deep woods surrounding the monastery, there was a little hut that a rabbi from a nearby town occasionally used as a hermitage. Though their many year, through their many years of prayer and contemplation, the old monks had become a bit psychic, so they could always sense when the rabbi was in his hermitage. The rabbi is in the woods. The rabbi is in the woods again, they would whisper to each other. And as he agonized over the imminent death of his order, it occurred to the abbot at one such time to visit the hermitage and ask the rabbi, if by some possible chance he could offer any advice that might save the monastery. The rabbi welcomed the abbot to his hut, 
But when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only commiserate with him. I know how it is, he exclaimed. The spirit has gone out of people. It is the same in my town. Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. So the old abbot and the old rabbi wept together. Then they read parts of the Torah and quietly spoke of deep things. The time came when the abbot had to leave. They embraced each other. It has been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years, the abbot said. But I have still failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there nothing you can tell me, no piece of advice you can give me that would help me save my dying order? No, I'm sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give. The only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to the monastery, his fellow monks gathered around him to ask, Well, what did the rabbi say? He couldn't help, the abbot answered. He just wept, and we read the Torah together. The only thing he did say, just as I was leaving, it was something cryptic, was that the Messiah is one of us. I don't think, I don't know what he meant. In the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered whether there was any possible significance to the rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us? Could he possibly have meant one of us monks here at the monastery? If that's the case, which one? Do you suppose he meant the abbot? Yes, if he meant anyone, he, could pro he probably meant Father Abbot. He has been our leader for more than a generation. On the other hand, he might have, he might have meant Brother Thomas. Certainly, Brother Thomas is a holy man. Everyone knows that Thomas is a man of light. Certainly, he could not, he could not have meant brother, brother Eldred. Eldred gets crotchety at times. But come to think of it, even though he's a thorn in people's sides, when you look back at it, Eldred is virtually always right. Often very right. Well, maybe the rabbi did mean Brother Eldred, but surely not Brother Philip. Philip is so passive, a real nobody. But then... Almost mysteriously, he has a gift for somehow always being there when you need him. He just magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet suppose he did. Suppose I am the Messiah. Oh God, not me. I couldn't be that much for you, could I? As they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that one among them might be the Messiah, and on the off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. Because the forest in which it was situated was beautiful, it so happened that people still occasionally came to visit the monastery to picnic on its tiny lawn, to wander along some of its path, paths even now and then to go into the dilapidated chapel to meditate. As they did so, without even being conscious of it, they sensed the aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five monks and seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of the place. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling about it. Hardly knowing why, they began to come back to the monastery more frequently to picnic, to play, to pray. They began to bring their friends to show them this special place, and their friends brought their friends. And then it happened 
that some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk more and more with the old monks. After a while, one asked if he could join them, then another and another. So within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order, and thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant center of light and spirituality in the realm. To me, that's a story of taking refuge in yourself as the Buddha and in your Sangha. And I love how the rabbi obliquely made them take refuge in themselves in the possibility that they're the Messiah and in each other, in each other's goodness and this kindness, this this generosity, this, this aura of grace came up and came about. So what if you were the Messiah or the Buddha and you treated yourself as that and you treated the people in your life as if they were the Buddha, seeing the Buddha inside them? So that would be taking refuge in your Sangha with the people who, who share your life with you. So with that, I'd like to stop and I would like to actually... Um, invite you now in a moment to get into groups of two or three for just a few minutes, then it would be lovely to hear from you. Um, How do you take refuge? How does that speak to you? If there was one way, if there was um, one choice you could take, if it could be either a complete reorientation of your life, um, that you would decide, it would be a dedication that I will try to live without harming others. For example, that could be a reorientation of your life. That would be a way of taking refuge in the Dharma. Or it could be as simple as I will now orient my life to be careful with my speech and try to be honest with my speech. And that's taking refuge in the Dharma. It's just one aspect of it. Or any other aspect. What do, what, how does taking refuge speak to you. And if it doesn't, that's perfectly fine too. You can turn to your your partner and say, it doesn't speak to me at all. What's this refuge thing? I don't get it. What is she talking about? That's perfectly fine. It's the truth of the moment. So be exactly where you are. So let's just take a few minutes just to share. So please turn to your partner, groups of two or three,
And we're going to wrap up in one more minute. So thank your partners, and let's come back to the big group. Okay, let's come back to the big group. So it would be lovely to, to hear um, from, from a few of you what came up? Anything. And we have mic runners. Thank you. Yeah, please, right there. Actually, hold on one sec, because it's being recorded and broadcast. <clears throat> I don't think it's on. Is it on? Being in the moment and uh, being aware of nature yeah. and getting outside of uh, the man-made man world. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, hearing the rain, hearing the frogs, yeah. uh, just realizing that uh, life is more than uh, man-made and what happens in Washington. Yeah, 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 lovely. <laughs> and, and to me that is... You know, dharma in, in the way that things are, it's nature, it's a natural law. That's another definition of dharma. It's the natural law, it's nature. It, this is nature, I'm nature, this body is nature, this mind is nature. So, so really becoming in touch with that instead of being in our heads of, oh, everything. Yeah, it's lovely. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, please. Uh, we were talking about feeling uh, so fearful and upset and terrorized by the political situation that we're facing now. And um, for me, I, I did a retreat here the first week of December, and I came in like a raging ball of despair. And at the end of the week of metta, I felt like <clears throat> I could really take refuge in the Dharma. It, was, it helped me more than anything, find some equanimity and some beginning of a path toward... Uh, loving kindness, and finding a, a refuge. I love the way you talked about the internal and the external. A refuge in myself that yeah. could then go forward into the world as a positive force. Lovely. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's mm, refuge in your heart. Yeah. Other reflections? Is there was a hand here? Over there, I saw some movement. Holding my cat, he gets refuge, I get refuge. Was that? Holding my cat on my lap. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Love cats. Yeah. 
Refuge. I find a refuge in music. Mm. Yeah. Emma, for you. A couple of minutes left, so if you have any last thoughts, better fit them in now. Neighbor and I found ourselves wondering about delusion as one of the poisons that you mentioned, and it seemed like a different category than the other two hatred and greed. Yeah. What, what is delusion? What is delusion? Yeah. And how does it, how okay, does it... in the minute that we have left. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, so it's interesting. So, so delusion is also um, <clears throat> thought of as confusion or ignorance or not knowing any better. I think that's so not knowing any better. So let's think of it this way. If, if, let's t- um, if, if we knew better, if we didn't have ignorance, if, if we weren't deluded, then we wouldn't hurt others. We wouldn't hurt ourselves, right? So it's, it's due to that ignorance or the dust in our eyes, which is also words from the sutta. Um, if you had clear vision, if you could see the, the repercussions of every action you do in the world and how it affects everyone, and if you had clear vision and you could see what you say and how it lands and how it really hurts someone, you would never say anything unkind. So it's that confusion, that delusion, that ignorance, that not clear seeing, that veil in front of our eyes that causes us to have greed, to want, which hurts us and hurts everyone, and to have hatred, which guess who it hurts first and foremost. So that's a one-minute Dharma talk on (laughs) what delusion is. If you got just one thing tonight... That's what delusion is. So anyway, so I hope this talk, this improvised talk, has been of some use about about the value and and really the um, the way that taking refuge, as it was beautifully shared in the audience, um, with the difficulty with with the tumultuousness of of our national landscape, just having a refuge for your heart to have peace and ease and clarity and find strength to be both a place to to provide safety for yourself and to then provide safety for others because we don't do this practice just for ourselves we do it for everyone everyone whose our lives come in contact with in any way so with that let's let's dedicate the practice of our meeting to, tonight and our practice together So may the fruits of our practice together tonight, both sitting, listening, sharing, considering and reflecting on taking refuge, let it be a cause and condition for safety, for liberation, for ourselves and all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy. May all beings be free.
Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.